welcome back to ABW in conversation with my name is Chris and I am your host this is my third recording in four days some would say podcast hall others would just say professional you take your pick listener I'll let you decide my guest today uh, what a what a fabulous young man this guy is look at look at how much he's blossomed I remember him when he was a young whippersnapper with hair far worse than mine if that's possible and now he's well look at him he's a fine hunk of a man my guest today is mr simon collings simon how are you sir i'm very good chris i'm slowly melting um in the english heat which is happens about three days out of the 365 in the year (laughs) but when it comes boy does it get hot and boy do we like to moan about it even though we moan about the rain and the cold but other than that i'm i'm all good yeah, yeah, very much so. I was saying the same to Tom yesterday. It's like we have that mini heat wave and yeah, we, we all look forward to it. And then we just spend our entire time moaning about it. We're, uh, we're not good with heat in the UK, are we? But, you know, ah, dear. I can imagine all of our American listeners now tuning in going 27 degrees. You haven't you haven't been born. But yeah, for us, that's hot. Anyway, yeah, we're not um, so up for it. We've got we've got no fans, no air conditioning. You know. No, no, that's very true. Actually, really not prepared. We don't have aircon, no, especially not where I work, but that's a story for another day. Right, so, um, like I've done with Tom, and like a lesser, to a lesser extent than Danny, because obviously everyone knows who Danny is, but um, I wanted to have a, a chat to you about a little bit about you, first of all, and then we'll kind of progress into a bit of casual chit-chat about football and, and Arsenal and all that's in between. So, for anybody that doesn't know you, shame on them, first of all, but uh, you came on board with ABW, Tell us a bit about your your journey, like when you came in, who got you? Because I, I can't actually remember how we discovered you. Technically, we're taking all the credit. And then, of course, you're now working for the London Evening Standard, Standard, if I can speak, which is, I mean, generally, a hats off to you. You've, you've done a fantastic job. You've made a career for yourself. Um, and I think you've stayed very humble as well, which is, is a rare kind of combination of things in, in the modern world. So... Tell us a bit about your journey and how you found us, how we found you and, and all that's in between that's got you to where you are now. Yeah, I mean, interrupt me at any point if I suddenly start going off on, on a big tangent. But I think I first started listening to ABW. I think it might have been when you guys first started, which I think it was 2012. I think I remember Danny saying when you were chatting to him the other week. Uh, and that was going into my last year of university. Um, and it was probably around the time when I think Twitter and... Uh, the sort of podcast world was just starting to grow and the interaction on it. And I know you used to listen to the pod, you know, pretty religiously sort of week in, week out, um, enjoyed the sort of diverse views it had. I think that was a time when Jeff was probably one of the first ITKs that we, we sort of had that are now pretty defunct in the, in the, in the modern world. Uh, you'd hear some interesting news and probably listened to it for about a year. And that was when I just finished my undergraduate degree which was ancient history which is a bit of bit far from where i am now um and i went in to do it to do a journalism uh masters in sports journalism after that and started doing my own podcast then a bit and i think i just got chatting to danny on online which is what i think seems to happen with anyone involved who gets involved with aw danny is always up for a chat he's always keen to talk to people i think he'd heard a bit of my my own podcast that we did at uni um a sort of premier league one and just ended up coming on the show um, with a few of the other guys who started doing blogs, which which uh, OG Jeff started. Uh, we had our own sort of blogger show where we chatted about things we were writing about. Um, and it sort of grew from there, really, uh, in terms of ABW. I've done less so as, as work has dictated 
in the years gone by. But yeah, they were sort of first guys who gave me an opportunity to go on a podcast, which is harder than people think. I, I think from the outside listening, they seem to be quite easy podcasts and editing them and working on them. But having edited one at uni and then being on ones as guests, they are actually difficult beasts and sometimes can be a lot more challenging than people people realise. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree with you more. I remember, now you've said it, actually, I do remember um, you having the, the uni show and now it's all coming back to me. Yeah, I do remember how that how that came about. So, so from there, obviously, like you touched on it there, you've you've gone now into the, the fast-paced world of modern sports journalism. Um, before we sort of delve into what you literally do on a daily basis, what what made you go down that route? Because like you say, ancient history, journalism, sports journalism, very far apart. Ancient history probably would serve Arsenal fans quite well right now. I think we'd, we'd probably all agree with that. But um, what what was it? Was it just your love for, for football and sport? Because you, you cover a variety of sports as well. It's not just football, it should be said. So was that what led you down that path? Or, or was it just the first opportunity within the journalism sphere that you could grab? Yeah, I mean, so when I was younger, probably like most... I think a lot of sports journalists, a lot of people, I wanted to be be a footballer um, and you get to sort of 13, 14 and you realise, yeah, this, is, this isn't this is happening. Um, and the next best thing for me was sort of realising, you know, you could write about sport, broadcast in it and be involved in the sporting world. And I sort of, from 13, 14, I'd set my you know, ambition and my aim was to be, to be a sports journalist and gradually was working out how do I, you know, what is the next step on the ladder to get to where I want to be? And the advice I was given was sort of do, you know, a solid based degree, a, a writing based degree, and then get your journalism qualifications after that. So I, I chose ancient history. Um, and as someone actually, to be fair, when I was moving into to work in journalism, I remember an editor when I was doing work experience saying, well, it's actually not the worst degree to do because you're essentially getting a load of different sources you're justifying what a good source is, what a bad source is, and you've got to try and come to a reason balanced argument at the end. So that was something I hadn't thought of, but I sort of landed on my feet there and that. And then I moved into to doing a year in sports journalism um, and quickly sort of realised, you know, did a bit of print work as part of my degree, did a bit of radio work, bit of video. Um, and as I was getting towards the end of the course, I was lucky enough to do some work experience for a company called Haters, who I think you've probably seen them on Twitter now. They, I mean, they're, they're an example of how the sports business has shifted. You know, they're an agency who traditionally over sort of 50 years they've been going, they would service newspapers. Originally, they would service magazines. Then they moved into the broadcast world and would service TV companies all around the world. And now a big part of their business is, is on YouTube, where They've grown a channel to over 200,000 followers. It's the main revenue stream for the business. And they've very much adapted over the years. And they gave me an opportunity to do some work experience right at the end of my degree, which was 2014. I said, come in for two weeks, do a bit of work. And, and that finished. And I got offered a job off the back of that and um, went pretty much full bore into reporting and working. And, and they were a great place to start because it wasn't so much um of you know doing one particular thing i did so many different things and i was very much thrown into it so i was writing bits for one of our clients we did sort of stuff for magazines in japan we would do stuff for a newspaper in ireland we would be doing a big part of our work was filming press conferences trainings and interviews where you'd essentially be a one-man band so i'd be filming the interview doing the interview editing it sending it um and i was given the the 
uh, at the time looked like a bad gig of Leicester because they'd just been promoted to the Premier League in 2014. And they said, right, you're the, you're the new guy. You can do Leicester. None of us really want to go up to there. You know, it's it's a bit of a mission to get out. I, I, live, I live just north of London, so it wasn't too bad for me. And so you could do them. And I started doing them that 2014-15 season. And they were doing predict- predictably bad near the bottom of the table. And then they, of course, had the great escape with, with Nigel Pearson. Um and the famous ostrich press conference, and they stayed up, and all. You know, I started thinking this is quite a good, a good club to cover. And then, of course, Ranieri came in um, in the following season, and um, I think there's a tweet that Neil often digs out of mine, where I, I went to the first game that season, and said, "Yeah, this quite like the look of Leicester under Ranieri. I've got them finishing fifteenth this season; should be fine." <laughs> um, and we all know what what went on to happen, but that was, you know, my second year of of. Um, being a qualified journalist and I lucked out by covering probably what is going to be, you know, go down as one of the greatest stories ever. Um, and I was mainly doing it as a sort of broadcast journalist, but towards the end we had a, a newspaper client in Ireland who I was doing a lot of work for from it. And it became, I remember, you know, originally going there, there'd be a group of sort of three, four camera men and women who I knew who we'd sort of see each week. And then by the time we got to the end, the room would be absolutely packed. You'd have crews from Denmark, you'd have Japanese film crews, French film crews. Everyone had come over for this story in Leicester. And I you know, I just stumbled on my feet. And a lot of journalism is that you're just in the right place at the right time. And I covered them a bit in the Champions League for that season um, and, and was loving it. And I stayed with haters all the way till... January 2019 was when I left. I sort of left off the back of doing um, the Arsenal tour in Singapore, which was 2018. Um, I didn't go to the World Cup that year. Um, I basically was deciding whether to go to the World Cup or go and do something different. And I said, I'll I'll go do the Arsenal tour in Singapore. I'll generate enough work through our clients. Um, And ended up doing some work covering the tour for the Evening Standard. And off the back of that, um, impressed them and they, they made an approach for me to move. So that was when I, when I left haters, but yeah, an amazing, amazing opportunity. And, you know, the, the things I did then, obviously I, I covered Euro 2016. I'm going to talk about the Euros and I'll touch a bit on the difference between doing that and the Euros this time. Um, and yes, it's been with the standard in, in 2019, started out there just doing Crystal Palace and, and Watford for six months. Again, I had a bit of luck because Watford went on their run to the FA Cup final, which was a brilliant thing to cover. Um, started doing a bit more Arsenal in my second season, just as helping out James Ollie, who then moved on and is is now at ESPN and was given, I was given the chance to do Arsenal full time from pretty much just after the pandemic hit. So um, it's been an interesting time of covering the club. Um, I got very excited when I was covering them because I thought, you know, brilliant covering Arsenal, going around Europe, lots of different stadiums, countries, pandemic hit, so couldn't travel, and they're now out of Europe. So the luck has dried up, I think, for the moment. But um, yeah, I mean, that's my, that's where I've got to today. Um, absolutely brilliant. I completely appreciate how it's probably, you know, so, so lucky to do a job like that. And there are times that every journalist will tell you where they think, oh, God, you know, this is, I'm really up to this. But particularly the pandemic for me, and, and you know, I was furloughed for sort of nine weeks um and not working did make me realize like yeah this is yeah this is this there's a reason why i wanted to do this all along how lucky i am and and i think having fans back now has reinforced that and uh yeah i can't complain at all about about the job i do really 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well said. So talk to me a bit about about the pandemic then, because obviously it is something that we've all lived through. And I appreciate like this podcast will hopefully hang around for a while and people may end up stumbling across us in three, four, five years or three, four, five months, whatever it may be. And and it will still be in, in people's mind. It's still in the history. How did the job change? Because one minute you're sat in front, like you say, you're sharing a room with with hundreds of different people from different backgrounds, different countries, in you know, different languages, and you're interviewing managers and players, and you're getting all you're getting the body language, you're getting you're reading the room. You know, if if somebody asks a, a question, I've seen it in press conferences before where certain questions been answered, and the manager just you just know there's that look and there's that body language. On Zoom calls, you, you don't really get that. So, I mean, how how has it been different? And have you got things in place now that you never would have dreamed would be the case? Like, do you foresee your job changing in the future as a result of this pandemic and, and how we're dealing with it on these sort of weird environments of, of Zoom calls, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it was very interesting when it, when it hit and because it completely changed certainly the way that the news cycle would normally work for, for football. It's, it's normally quite easy to sort of plan your week. And in, in journalism, we call it sort of diary events. So you look like, we know we're going to have Arteta on a Wednesday. We know we've got a game on a Thursday game on a Sunday. So you can sort of plan how you're going to fill the newspaper, what's going to come. And when everything stops, you suddenly have to completely think about like, what are we going to, you know, what we're going to do here? Because this is, you know, this is unprecedented. There's there's essentially nothing going on. So I think it changed the way um, people reported on things. I think it made people think outside the box and it made you try and look for different stories to, to write about and try and approach things in, in a different way. And I think also um, it sort of put a reliance on your contacts and people you can speak to, who you can interview. And and I think it also, <laughs> from, from one point of view, is how it made... Um, if you were trying to get hold of someone, it is normally notoriously quite difficult. Um, as I think journalists will tell you, trying to get hold of some contacts. When the pandemic was on, it was uh, understandable that there's nowhere else they can be than sat at home. So not answering <laughs> their calls or their texts. You don't really know what they're doing. Um, so I did think it, it and it made, um, and also when you couldn't meet new contacts, you know, it's, as you say, it's very important when you, you meet someone, you can get the body language, you can grow a relationship and, and having to do everything virtually I think it was very hard to to try and cultivate and and meet new contacts, but I think it has helped for some things. Um, I think some clubs will keep doing certain elements of their work on Zoom because of the ease of it. I, I always think for an interview or um, particularly if it's a sensitive subject, I always prefer doing it face to face and and being in the same room as someone because, as you say, you can just get the feel of something, the vibe of the situation. I think sometimes for a press conference, though, the ease of being able just to get the entire media onto Zoom and do it over Zoom does help, particularly if it's something like seven o'clock at night, uh, you know, European press conference, to be able just to have everyone buzzed into the room and, and do it like that, I think can be quite easy. So it's going to be interesting this season what happens, um, because currently in, in England, the restrictions have gone. This is Freedom Day, apparently. Um, so... So in theory, from next season, press conferences could could return to normal. But I wonder whether there might be a sort of hybrid, which we saw a bit with England in the Euros, where they had some journalists in the room, sort of maybe six, seven, eight, nine, ten, who did a sort of test or, you know, were socially distant and then had more journalists on Zoom 
to beef up the numbers. I, I can't, I st- even though we are apparently in Freedom Day, I still can't envisage having this packed room full of journalists right now. Um, I think there'll be some sort of compromise just because we've, we're seeing, you know, the instances of even now in pre-season friendlies being shut down because squads are getting outbreaks and it seems a bit of an unnecessary risk for clubs at the moment to have people coming onto a training ground, onto the site uh, and possibly getting cases spreading. But we'll see. I, I think hopefully it'll get back to normal eventually. But I, I'm, I personally aren't massively against things being on Zoom for press conferences and stuff because I think it does sometimes help with, with travel and bits and pieces. But there is nothing like being sat down one-on-one and doing a proper proper interview. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, give me, if, if there is any, because, you know, we, we can't make these things up. Have you had a one funny experience you can share since since the the pandemic kicked in in terms of Zoom or somebody who left a mic on that shouldn't or maybe buzzed into a room when they weren't quite ready at home? Has there been anything that you can think of that, that comes to mind? Oh, yeah, I mean, well, I had one. Um, I've, I've witnessed some and I've had one. I mean, I had one this morning, so I was doing a, doing a little bit of rugby, which I sometimes sort of help out um, my colleague at the paper who's mainly the cricket and rugby guy. And when you sort of sign into the Zoom, as most people probably know, you sort of it it naturally sort of leaves your mic unmuted. Um, and this one journalist goes, he says, oh, "Yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm just on another fucking Zoom. Oh, I've just got this like back to back Zoom. It's a fucking nightmare." And then just suddenly the mute goes and it kicks <laughs> off. Um, I mean, everyone's been there. That is the thing with Zooms. You can you can. It's not like a normal meeting where you're sort of bouncing around. You know, you can be back to back to back because you're not going anywhere. You're staying there, and um, there was another famous one which I always remember. You can probably find it on, um, probably find it on Twitter or YouTube. But Mourinho was um, sort of listening to a question from one journalist's press conference. He's like, I couldn't really hear him. He's just like, oh, I can't like hear what you're trying to say. And the guy's, like, oh, sorry, it's just my it's just my washing machine going off in the background. <laughs> and just and that, it's just those sort of moments. and they've become sort of normalised because I think everyone's just got on with it. Um, but there isn't. I mean, there isn't a single press conference that goes by without either the manager or the press officer going, yeah, you're on mute. No, you're still on mute. Okay, we'll come back to you later on. <laughs> they just, even 18 months in, we're still struggling with it. But um, it's all part yeah. of fun and games. And I think I think people are just used to it. Yeah, something that us podcasters know all about, recording the wrong things at the wrong time or not hitting play. Mm. And yeah, we've, we've been doing it for years. In terms of um, when you've interviewed as well, I appreciate you probably can't name names here because I don't want to slander anyone. But do you do you find that when you talk to professional footballers, managers um, or other professional sports people, do you find that there are some that are notoriously hard to deal with? I mean, you mentioned Jose Mourinho there. I think we all have our kind of views on what he's like, but I'm led to believe that on the quiet, he's actually quite a quite a charming and, and humorous chap. It's just that he plays his persona, which we all as football fans go well, he's a bit of a knob. And I, I almost feel like that's part of his his footballing style, isn't it? It's like there's no way Pep Guardiola is as regimented at home with the you know, the, the dishes out of the mm. dishwasher as he is in training with Man City. So I'm sure there's a bit of a persona and personality and how they have to come across to their players. Is, is that a fair comment? And have you sort of found that some players maybe that you didn't expect to be awkward have been or had sort of strange demands maybe? Or have you found that most of them are pretty down to earth and kind of know that they've got things to do, you know, media requirements fulfilled, for example, for example? Yeah, you get it. I mean, it varies from manager, manager, player to player. I, I think Mourinho was probably, 
Oh, you've, you've always had it in football, but Mourinho for me in the modern era was probably one of the first to really, you know, be able to control and manipulate the press in a way of him sort of deciding what the line from this press conference is going to be. Like, what's the story going to be from, from Mourinho? And, and any journalist going to a Mourinho press conference knows if Mourinho says something good enough here, this is the back page of the newspaper. This is going all around the internet. And Mourinho will know that himself. He's Jose Mourinho. And there'll be times when he will come in there with a specific thing that he wants to get across. Um, and he's, he gets it in a sense that, he, yeah, he, he he's very different from probably from the person you see in the press conference to the person he is in, in normal life. But a press conference is how you present yourself and portray yourself all around the world. Um, and players too are, are different. And um, I mean, for me, He's not the most loved by Arsenal fans, but I've done interviewed Troy Deeney a couple of times, and must say I do find him fascinating because he is so he is so honest and open. There's no nothing is off limits. He will answer anything. He will give you an honest answer, um, and he will tell it how it is. And that, as a journalist, is the most refreshing thing where someone is just completely honest and tells you what they think. Um, and it's similar for Ben Foster, who's at Watford as well, who. He's a brilliant, brilliant bloke and someone I'm hoping to interview before the season starts again. He was one of the first interviews I did when I moved to the to the standard. Um, just, you know, absolutely loves life, lives it to the full. Will, again, tell you how it is. He's honest, he's open. And that's what you want. I remember for him, for one of them, we was, I was sort of chatting about um, when Javi Gracia was there and they had this fantastic run. And the big sort of thing was the fitness and the, the physicality of the team. And um, he's a chef as well. Uh, Foster used to be a chef. He was in Cafe Rouge for a bit. And we were talking about, you know, how they've got them so finely tuned and performing so well. And he was like, well, you know, the, they are super strict in what they feed us and everything, how they prepare for the games. But to be honest, look, I'm the guy on the back of the bus with the sweets, with the cans of pop, you know, I'm the one feeding <laughs> it around, stuff like that. And the sort of press officer looks over just like, and he's like, and Ben's like, actually, yeah, don't, don't put that in. Don't put that in. You know, the, the, the fitness coach and the nutritionist will kill me. <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay. So he's like, actually, you can put it in if you want. I don't care, I don't care. But that sort of stuff where he do that's what you want is someone to be open and honest. And, and most players, um, if they've agreed to an interview, if they've agreed to give you their time, are pretty open and honest. I think a mix zone, which, oh, I mean, we haven't had a mix zone, um, which for those people who don't know, essentially is after a game, you basically have an area normally whereby the team buses are and you try and grab players as they walk past for two, three minutes. Um, players can be a bit different because it's quite, it's quite a different environment. Um, but if someone's agreed to do an interview with you and sit down and talk, it's very rare. Um, you don't get um, a good and open, an open sort of person. I think a good example, which wasn't an interview involving me, but I remember reading it. Um, you can probably dig it out, was an interview the Daily Mail did with De La Feo before the 2019 FA Cup final, um, which clearly didn't go how the interview, interviewer wanted it to. Um, I think De La Feo was a bit um, in a hurry to get away. And you sort of read the whole piece. And it's very cleverly written. It's not outwardly slagging off De La Feo, and he still managed to get a piece out of it. But there's this subtle undertone of how didn't really want to play ball. You only want to be there for 10 minutes. Um, and that's not not really the game and not really on. But that's a rare instance, I think, most of the time. If someone says they'll, they'll do an interview with you, they will give you the all, which um, I think is only really right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well said. And um, biggest name you've ever interviewed? Just just an off-the-cuff question there. 
Oh, um, biggest name I've ever interviewed. I'd probably say um, when I was working at Haters, I got to do um, a sort of broadcast interview with Eddie Jones when he was the England head coach for sort of 10 minutes, which at the time was probably one of the um, the biggest things I'd done. And yeah, that's probably the biggest one. I've done. I think he's probably the biggest name that I've done. I mean, I've done various footballers, but uh, we did, I did a, me, myself, James Ollie and a two others did a round table with Saka towards the end of last season, which was great. Um, it's always difficult to say. I mean, because um, sometimes my favourite interviews are, you know, people um, who aren't as famous, but you get a better interview out of them. Um, yeah. And I remember doing one with Frank Kirby years and years ago, actually sort of soon after I started Haters, I did it for the Mail on Sunday, um, all about her depression and how she coped after her mum passing away and the impact it had on her and playing sport. And that, again, you know, she wasn't a huge name at the time. She is now a massive name in women's football. But that sometimes is, is more rewarding than interviewing a bigger name is the interview you get itself. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's a difficult one to answer that. But, yeah, probably it's the, the name is probably probably Eddie Jones, I'd say. Good stuff, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I would, of all the names I've picked out of the hat, that wouldn't have been the one that, that jumps to mind. So that is really interesting. Um, talk to me, you, you mentioned Bukayo Saka there. It's kind of a nice segue because I want to ask you a little bit about the Euros. So um, you followed England, of course, as, as a fan and, you know, doing your work as well in amongst that. How, how did it feel for you? Because it was a strange tournament for me personally in that I'm usually very wedded to to European tournaments like I'm not a huge international fan in terms of like the friendlies mid-season and that I find it a bit like it, it kind of kills the momentum of the club season but when you've got a European Championships or a World Cup it, I'm all about it you know as many games as you can get back to back eating all the wrong things all the wrong times of night and you know sharing stories with people at work about football all day long and it's great this year I sort of felt a bit like <sighs> there was games I enjoyed and there was games I, I just found myself looking through my phone because it was just, it almost felt like there was just too much football um, with what's going on in the pandemic and that and no fans and stuff. It, I just found it tough to really get properly into. And then as the tournament progressed, obviously in living in the UK, even or in England, I should say, even as not necessarily the biggest England fan, I think it's fair to say is myself, it, it did kind of wrap the country up a bit, didn't it? And it, and it was quite a big uh, well, it, it, as it got, as it sort of gathered momentum, it became even bigger. I asked a similar question to Tom in the last podcast, and I'm intrigued to get your sort of both your heart, head and heart situation here from a journalist's point of view. What's the thing you take away from this Euros in terms of specifically England? Is it the scenes that we saw after the final and, and all the off the pitch business, and indeed the taking of the knee situation pre tournament, or is it the actual? generational talents uh, the, the the seeming wave of optimism there is ahead of the next world cup and, and indeed what the manager was able to get out of those players yeah oh, i mean it's, it's so difficult with um with england because of the way it ended um we can't ignore what happened um on that final day um and i think it will well uh, it should really have an impact on on whether england hosts the, the 2030 world cup and the, the world we live in where social media can instantly share things around the world and the image that was portrayed of London and Wembley, if I was FIFA or any other country 
it's not a good one, is it? You know, fans breaking down barriers, storming the stadium. And someone made a point, I can't remember who it was, I think it was a journalist from the Times who sort of tweeted saying, purely from a safety point of view, if you're thinking, you know, it's not so much. I remember 2016, particularly covering that that year, there was this big threat of terrorism, partly because I think the year Stade de France explosion happened the, the year before that. But, you know, from a terrorist point of view, you imagine someone could have easily stormed into that stadium then um, with a rucksack on and, and you could have had a huge tragedy on your fans. So I really find it difficult to look past that. But perhaps because it's because I want to and, I, and um, I'm, you know, I'm an optimist and I'm someone who likes to look at the, the better side of things. I can't also look past the squad and everything they've done. Um, you look at someone like Marcus Rashford and everything he's achieved, particularly during the pandemic feeding so many children around the country. Um, even someone like Bukayo Saka, I think the level of maturity we've seen from him on the pitch, off the pitch, the way he speaks uh, as a role model to young people goes throughout the squad. I think all of those players are immensely likeable and really um, and are, you know, just good human beings, people that you want to get behind and want to support. And that's almost what made the scenes and the distraction that they placed around everything and the fact that the players were racially abused and the fact it painted England as a country in a bad light made it more upsetting because the the squad and, and Southgate as well, and I heard you talking to Danny about it or might have been on another podcast. As a man, you can't fault Gareth Southgate at all in everything he's done and, you know, particularly around the stuff of taking a knee, which was a big talking before the talking point before the tournament of players being booed for doing it and politicians getting involved. And Southgate, I felt like he cut through all of that. And certainly to me, I felt like he connected to a lot of people and, and he united a lot of people in something that which threatened to be incredibly divisive during the tournament. I felt like he spoke very good on it. Um, so that is what I will take away is we've grown to like a squad of England players, a manager, We've got new heroes, new role models, people that kids can be proud to look up to, people that parents can be proud their kids look up to. And hopefully that'll continue over the, over the next decade because there probably wasn't always a time when England were immensely likeable and it might be part of the reason why you're not a huge England fan or why you know I know other people aren't huge England fans. But I think looking at this group, um, I find it very hard to, to not like them and not root for them even with everything that has gone on around it, like we say on that on that final day. Yeah, I, w- I will confess, there's a few England players I like. Um, mm. There's just there's just quite a few I I, I don't like, and <laughs> there's, there's something about uh, trying to get behind the likes of Harry Kane that just doesn't sit very well with me. But then I do have that same dilemma following France and and having mm. Hugo Lloris in goal. So you know, it, it swings and roundabouts. Tell me a bit about the tournament because how, how did you find that from from a perspective just in covering it? And I, I'm guessing that you got to mix with different circles of journalists and, and different countries, uh, probably some new names, some old familiar names. How how was it to to cover a tournament where we did get some fans back in certain stadiums, um, and then of course the Christian Eriksen incident. You know, in a year where we've we've had unprecedented events. Unfortunately, this isn't the first time that something like this has happened on a football pitch, but to see it live in a broadcasting sense, I don't know whether you covered the story, but but how, how did the how did that 
sort of affect you and and how did you find that mixing with other journalists like an event like that and of course the tournament as a whole how, how did it sort of go mm. down for you? yeah i mean on, on ericsson first of all i was working um I was working from home that day and i was doing uh doing like a web shift so i was just covering some games i remember i covered the covered the wales game off the tv um we didn't send to baku covered the wales switzerland game i think it was off the tv and then was writing up a piece off the back of that and i had the the denmark game game on um and i remember yeah i can remember watching him sort of slowly stumbling forward and then just sort of completely stopped what i was doing as he collapsed um and just found the whole situation I, I thought it would impact me, but it impacted me in a far greater way than than I realised it realised it would. I was pretty emotional. I was I was actually crying a little bit watching it. And I don't know if it's because he's a very similar age to me, um, but the whole thing was so distressing. Uh, and there was a big debate, wasn't there, afterwards about how long the cameras sort of stayed on the situation, panning round to, to pictures of his of his uh, of his partner the players forming the ring around him to shield everyone from what he was doing. Um, and, and, and as he went, went off and I think eventually they cut the BBC feed. Um, I was just thinking this is, this is the tournament it has to be over now. This is, you know, we can't go carry on playing football anymore because it does, just doesn't really matter. It's not totally irrelevant. And then, I mean, they finished the game that day, which was absolutely bonkers. But from a work perspective, we were then all of a sudden all on the desk right we need to we need to react to this we need to report on it and um it was credit to one of my colleagues who was running the desk one of the editors who was just sort of saying look we need to be super super careful here because there's going to be all sorts come around there's going to be pictures possibly there's going to be tweets from certain people saying this saying that and he was like before anyone you know publishes tweets writes anything you need to come to me first to give you approval on it because at a time more than ever you cannot be spreading fake news or something which isn't reliable because we're talking about a person's life here so and he handled the situation expertly and that was a very important thing that you had to do was just you know wait for official statements from denmark from uefa don't you know getting caught up in in a situation that was very fast moving pace so from a work perspective it was a challenging situation something i've never ever dealt with um and off the back of it we we, we still covered it through the through the tournament obviously there was um all the press conferences was done over Zoom, so you could do the media sessions with Denmark. And I also interviewed um, Justin Edinburgh's son, who people will remember was Tottenham player, um, manager of Leighton Orient, who died of a, a cardiac arrest at the age of 49, and uh, interviewed his son, Charlie, who's a fantastic bloke. And basically off the back of his, his dad dying, which was 2019, um, he set up the Justin Edinburgh Three Foundation, which is the main thing they're trying to do is set up a thing called Justin's Law, where they want to make it the law in the UK that you have a defibrillator at every leisure centre, Sunday league, basically any sort of place where you're exercising, they believe it should be the law that there is a defibrillator to to be used if it is needed, because at the moment it isn't the law in the UK. And then Charlie's dad, Justin, had a, had a heart attack, cardiac arrest at the gym. The gym staff weren't sort of fully adept at performing CPR. There was no defibrillator. And at the age of 49, he he passed away. So I interviewed Charlie a bit about that, but also about the work they're doing and 
that was again was quite a difficult interview to do because he was talking about he was watching the game with his mum you know sat next to her and they're watching this scene of probably very similar to what happened to to their dad but it also reaffirms him about how important it is the work that he's doing and it is something that I try to support whenever I can retweet and push things out for them um, of why he's doing what he is and why they you know I think Ericsson showed to us that yeah any, it can happen to anyone and then I think um, the idea of having defibrillators in, in gyms and places where people exercise I think feels like a law that should should be in place and hopefully will be going forward so that was a big part of the tournament but as a tournament as a whole um, it was very very different to a normal a normal tournament so Euro 2016 was the first tournament I covered and for that I was based down in Nice so I stayed in um, a little flat there for just just did the group stages and I was sort of hopping between Nice and Marseille which is fantastic um, amazing experience the stadium in Nice uh, is that it's actually I think it's still the profile like head a picture on my Twitter profile love the stadium really cool stadium and Marseille as well the velodrome yeah if you ever get an opportunity to go there absolutely incredible stadium proper old school big ground um, so I was going between those and did sort of seven games and really enjoyed the kind of atmosphere of having like a host nation and a tournament like the streets were bustling uh, everywhere you went you just got the sense that there was a tournament going on and obviously we had games here in um, in London but it I think the tournament lacked having a host um, I mean there's not a worse time to have a tournament like this than a pandemic but I felt like it missed that feel of of having you know the hosts and everyone getting behind it and everywhere you go you can tell the tournament's going on Speaking to people who went to Russia, even there in Russia, which is a vast, vast country, you still had that sort of feel. I think Sefran, the UEFA president, has come out and said, we won't do a tournament like this again. It's it's not a good idea. And I agree with them. I just don't think it had that proper tournament feel. I went up to Glasgow for the games there. So those are the games I was mainly covering. So I was going up to Hampden Park. And the atmosphere was good. I think they had 12,000 in there in a the stadium with 50,000. And the Scots made a hell of a noise for 12,000. Um and yeah, the national anthem was brilliant. Um, the atmosphere after the games not so good because Scotland didn't have a great tournament, <laughs> but they were good. They were good hosts. But again, it was it was a day rather than having the feel of a tournament being there for a month. So, in the football on the pitch was good. I think um, the quality of it was pretty high. I think the issue they had, uh, you could see in certain certainly with some teams. Um, struggled from having a lack of depth because I think of the sheer volume of football teams have played. Uh, the reason, what I mean, England and Italy, probably the two best teams, but I think a big factor with them is they had the deepest squads. Um, and when you're bringing your six players off the bench, if you've got the sort of quality those two teams do, I think that's why they did so strong. Whereas the stories of, you know, your Ukraines, your Switzerlands, even your Denmarks, I just feel like they ran out of legs quarterfinals, semifinals, because the depth wasn't really there and because the players are even more tired than they would normally be because of the relentless nature of the schedule because of COVID. Um, I remember watching the England-Ukraine game and I saw you, I went to the last 16 game, Ukraine-Sweden game up at Hamden Park and I, Ukraine were running non-stop and I looked at the stats and I think they had run more than any other team in this Euros 
and they looked looked like a good side quite so I was like, oh, they might give England quite a game here and then I saw them against England and I was like oh no they've just <laughs> completely gone there's nothing <laughs> they've emptied the tank to get here um but it was a good tournament but I, I really missed having a host and I think um I don't think we'll see something like this again you might you know you can have two countries doing it or something like that but the idea of having it all over the place yeah. really didn't sit well and there's obviously the argument of everyone saying that teams were flying to you know Baku and all sorts and other teams like England just stayed in stayed yeah. in the UK for for six games so yeah not the best idea from UEFA but that's that's uh that's not always the case in UEFA is it so yeah we we try things but um, I'm with you I, th- I think that's what partly took away from my not enjoyment, but I, it just didn't feel like a normal tournament because, like you say, it was so different mm. and it wasn't just, you know, I love that atmosphere, like you say, of it all being in one country. Um, and uh, the Qatar World Cup is going to be, and talking to Tom about this, it's going to be very strange, uh, not only being in the winter and half a season and then half the other season with the World Cup in between, but just the whole country, the, the way it's set up and the temperatures, and it's going to be really, really strange. I I personally love a World Cup when the games are like in the middle of the night. I don't know why. There's something like about being back to when you're sort of 14 and you shouldn't be staying up to watch games. Or you might remember during the, the South Korea World Cup and going to the pub at eight o'clock in the morning. And it was just the most <laughs> surreal experience. I remember watching England and Nigeria in that tournament and basically going to a nightclub at 8am and having a fry up and a beer. It's just the most weird, weird experience ever. But yeah. Roll on uh, weird, 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 weird kickoffs are, a, are like a novelty of World Cups, aren't they? They sort of go yeah. with it if it's kicks yeah. off a strange time. I suppose the next one is going to be Canada, Mexico, USA. So we oh, should have yes. a bit of yeah, I forgot that. So we should have a bit of that, which will be quite fun. Yeah, um, and, and we, I was chatting to the, yeah, and I was chatting the other day to mates like maybe it's the nostalgia of it, but mm. when you're when you watch the old like you know. I remember the career in Japan World Cup and you're seeing like what sort of montage of IT, ITV come up with here to, you know, there's a very cheesy, like full of stereotypes montage about how we're playing in Asia and all this sort of stuff. And then, you know, there's a theme around the whole tournament. Um, and he didn't really have that with this Euros. Uh, yeah. I think it was, I think it was, a, it was a good idea to give it a go, mm. but I think we've shown that it's, it's when you've got that one host, yeah. that's always the best. And particularly as well, because, Normally, you get the host, as we saw with England, I think, you know, the advantage of being the host is clear to see. And if you've got a team, I mean, OG would love it to be Canada, but if you get a team that somehow goes on a little run, then the whole feel of the tournament, when the host nation is doing well, it makes yeah. it even more special. So, yeah, I'm excited for, for the next. The next few tournaments, I think, look good to me. Um, the yeah. Euros being in Germany, I think, will be good. Yeah, Canada, USA, Mexico will be fun. And, um, well... 2030 in England, I'm not so sure, but Portugal and Spain, I think, would be a pretty good host for a for a World Cup. Yeah, that'd be fun. Even, I mean, if you take uh, take away all the human rights elements and, and everything that's wrong with the Qatar World Cup, I do think it'll be interesting to see what it'll be like in in such mm. a strange country. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, sense of the word strange, but it is so different. There is so much money and these purpose-built stadiums and these fake clouds and all this, it's, it's going to be quite an experience. So even that will be strange. And, and it's going to be the, the last, the last 32 team world cup. So. Oh yeah. Good um, point. Yeah. Yeah. And I was looking at, I think, I mean the size of it, I think, I think it's about three quarters of the size of Northern Ireland. So, I mean, this is a, this is a small place that is hosting mm. um, a lot of people, the world cup, mm. a lot of people. Yeah. And 
I mean, there was sort of murmurings years and years ago. I remember that they might have done like a sort of golf World Cup and had some games in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, Bahrain, mm. Saudi Arabia or something, which I think might have been a good idea. So just in that condensed space, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. And, and I, that will make it an interesting tournament um, just because it will be so different to anything we've ever experienced. Yeah, um, and it feels like it feels like ages ago that Qatar got the World Cup. I don't I don't know when it was, but I feel like we've been waiting for this World Cup. Yeah, for forever. ages. Yeah, um, I think I think because they beat England to the bid, maybe. But I don't know why. I can just it feels like we've waited ages for this. So, yeah. and the fact it's come around so soon, I think is is exciting as well. And and having it around November December time again, very different. So, yeah, it's, gonna it's one weird. to look forward to. I think and and uh, intriguing to see how it goes. Yeah, really weird. And I think we can all get behind the idea of the uh, USA, Mexico and Canadian World Cup. Uh, I look forward to Kanye West stepping forward, Diana Ross style, <laughs> USA Nightfall, blazing one over the bar from, from six yards. But uh, yeah, we shall see. Um, of course, this is a, an Arsenal podcast um, as its sort of title goes. So we would be remiss to not uh, to not touch on, on all things Arsenal. So there's a couple of things I definitely want to get your opinion on in a minute uh, that are specific subjects. But as an overview, let's, let's talk a bit of pre-season. I was chatting to Tom about the two results in Scotland that we've had. They've not been the best results, but performance is encouraging. Obviously, some of our fans have gone off the deep end. Who just thought that would happen? Uh, but we we have seen signings. We saw Nuno Tavares play and score against Rangers. Obviously, the defeat to Hibbs wasn't great. Um, we've seen Sambi Lukonga, sort of the the great mythical creature that we thought was never going to get announced, finally get get announced today. Uh, he's joined the club, and it seems Touchwood like he's going to stay and not go on loan, which I think is a good thing. What have you made so far of of pre season and, and Arsenal? Because you are of course covering them. How how have you felt? about what you've seen, what you've reported on, the access you've had so far? Is, is it a positive, upbeat sort of club that is potentially going to return to something like top six status next year, do you feel? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they've got to bring back Georgian, the set pieces. And he, he's got to get him <laughs> back in there. I mean, a nightmare. <laughs> but, um, no, I think pre-season is always... It's a very it's a very weird one, pre-season. I kind of feel... Normally, it's a situation where if a team has a bad preseason, it's a bit like the Community Shield. If a team has a bad preseason, you go, oh, it doesn't matter, it's preseason. If they have a good preseason, you go, they look fantastic, they're going to hit the ground <laughs> running. Uh, and normally, it's, it's somewhere in between, really. I think these first two games, in particular, um, were just about getting some minutes in the legs. We saw that by the number of changes that were made. Um, also, the players involved, you know, not everyone's uh, with the squad who should be. And I personally don't really read too much into pre-season until you get to sort of right at the end of July and start of August. I think those games against Chelsea and Spurs will be a better barometer to have a look and see how the team is shaping up. I really feel like this first week where they've been in training for days is not something to lose sleep over. And re- and fans, <laughs> please don't lose sleep over pre-season games against Hibs and Rangers because it is a long old season. And if you're pulling your hair up now, you're not going to be left by <laughs> by May um, there were elements of the team that I thought looked good I thought Smith Rowe looked excellent in both games um, I thought Tavares I was polite uh, you know pretty impressed by because there wasn't um, certainly from Portugal there wasn't a big amount of hype about him um, mm. didn't seem to be this mass swell of like Arsenal of unearthed this wonder kid um, but uh, watching him, he seems to have physically 
I like him a lot and athletically I like him a lot and I feel like he's quite a raw player who if you coach him well which Arteta can do with players if you coach him well I feel like you could develop him into a good player um, and that role behind Tierney is so hard to fill because basically you, in an ideal world Kieran Tierney just plays 38 Premier League games so that guy's not really there to play so there was always a debate of whether you sign a seasoned veteran as sort of Ryan Bertrand or if you went for a young player who you moulded um, and the rest of the squad, I mean, Bamiang's come in for a lot of criticism. We'll find out if that's rust or something's gone wrong. I, I can't read too much into it. Um, for the, these, these sort of pre-season games, the early ones, for me, are about getting minutes in your legs and also about some young players sticking their hand up and, and showing their opportunity because the likes of Maitland-Niles, um, you know, Willian, other players who probably look like they're going to leave they're sort of going through the motion here because if they're going to leave the club, the last thing they want is to get injured. They're not really fighting for their place because they look like they're going. So it's a difficult one. I, I think we'll, as I say, we'll know more around August time, but there is a sense now that hopefully things are starting to pick up. I think getting Lukonga through the door before America was, was important to do. Um, they've got Tavares in. Ben White, they're going to have to wait to do because he's on holiday and they're going to need to sort out the goalkeeping situation, I think there's going to be a, going to be a pressing one. Um, and also they're going to have to sort out the attacking midfield situation as well, because as much as I love Smith, I don't know if you can go a season with him being your, um, him being a number 10 and not having another option or someone to change things up. Well, I thought it worked well when Odegaard was there and you could move Smith Rowe left, move him, move him right. Even if you wanted to. Um, and then it's about getting players out the door, but, you will know, particularly from following French football, there is very, very little money in the market other than in England. Um, <laughs> I don't think you would find anyone on the continent paying £50 million for Ben White or paying £50 million probably for any player. So they're going to struggle to get players out the door. And whether it's a case that um, they end up loaning a lot of players and saying, look, we'll take the fee in a year's time, as is the case with Gwenduzi, Mavropanos, that could be the case. But I think the key will be if they are going to loan players that they get some sort of guarantee, they're going to get money in a year's time because they need to shift these players and they need to get some, some money in to try and get, get things moving. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, we can also exclusively reveal that William is in advanced negotiations with Islington steak bar and grill at this stage. So, um, <laughs> see how that that turns out uh yes agreed um just on that sort of subject you said about the attacking midfield this is kind of a this is a thing that's dividing a lot of arsenal fans uh, just sort of on a brief aside just wanted to get your thoughts on if you if you had the choice what would you do would you look to bring in two players for the midfield one potentially who will sort of sit deeper and then one who will attack because i think it's fair to say that Lekonga, Feels feels to me a bit sort of Alex Song in that there's a lot of potential there, and as long as he doesn't turn into a, a massive prat um, and go to Barcelona when he really shouldn't, and pick up trophies when he really shouldn't, but uh, he feels like a, a project, a player that that we may get something out of him. Maybe even what Guendouzi should have been in in principle. Yeah. It might take him eighteen months, two years. It, he might do a Fabregas and come in straight away. But if you if you consider him as the future, you've basically got Thomas Partey. And Mohamed Elneny in that holding sort of central midfield role. And then, as you said, Smith-Rowe, Saka, Pepe in those three positions, Willian, if he's still around. But I would argue there's probably room for two in that area. Would you go along with that? Yeah, if you, if you, I think you can, you can have a slightly smaller squad this season because of no Europe. 
Um, I think you can look at what Villa and sort of West Ham did, where you probably need 18, 19 senior first team players. And then you could probably have three, four youngish players like your Balogans to beef up the numbers a bit. But in midfield, yeah, I, I agree with you. Simply because of the, I mean, the Conga was needed because of the, the bodies going out the door. Um, where Doozy's obviously gone, Treo uh, will go. Um, Maitland-Niles will go, I think. But he's one player, to be honest. I don't think it's going to happen. But if there was a way you could persuade him to stay and be a backup central midfielder um, and sort of shift, make him play the new El Nene role, so be that backup utility sort of player, I would probably like to keep Maitland-Niles because he's homegrown. Um, I think he's quite a neat and tidy player. But I think he, I think he's a bit like Willock, where he's had a taste of playing week in, week out, and he's going to want that. Um, so you, you're going to need at least one for me in that sitting role. I think Party plus a first team player. Um, Lukonga was reading his interview today on the club website. Said his sort of best role is in a number six, but he can play yeah. as a box to box. He can play further forward. And there was a good piece by Sam Dean in the Telegraph. He's done a big uh, sort of background on. He's spoken to some people at Andelect. And they make the point in that Andalect um, to Sam that he is not the finished article. So I'm hoping fans will not put too much pressure on him, but he is raw, he is rough, he needs work. So in an ideal world for me, you have Party plus one other and El Nene and the Congo, four centre mids for two roles, I think is fine. You've got Aziz as an absolute fifth if you wanted to. You can even push Ben White and play him there if you need to. That other role, that other central midfield role, I think is so, so crucial to get it right. Um, obviously players being linked Locatelli Neves um, I've seen some links to I think it was a player in Holland the other day who was linked with it you might know better than me that I saw Drew was tweeting about Cooper Minus um, yes to one yeah. um, so there's lots of names going in there the Neves one I, I did get a lot because I think he's quite, quite similar to Xhaka and what he offers um, mm. didn't have a very good season with Wolves last year but speaking to people um, who cover Wolves, they say that was a one-off and normally he's been brilliant for them and he, he's a leader, he's good on the ball and would sort of fit that Xhaka role. I don't think fans or probably Arsenal themselves particularly like the idea of 35, 40 million. It feels mm. feels like quite a lot, um, particularly when Locatelli's been spoken about at the same price. But that is a really important position for me and, and who they get there is going to define you know, what this sort of rebuild is going to look like because we saw how important Xhaka was. You look at the statistics, you look at the games he played, minutes, passes, a lot of things went through Xhaka. Like him or, or loathe him, he was the hub of that team. Um, so that role is absolutely crucial. And, and further forward, I think you're fairly well stacked. Smith Rose, your number 10. You need someone else there. Um, Saka, Pepe on the wings. <sighs> Willian looks like he's going to go. Um, you then got obviously a Bamian can play wide if you want Nelson. Are you going to get him out the door? Um, Martinelli, I think well. Martinelli, yeah. Um, so I think ideally you'll probably play Saka and Pepe on the wings and Smith Rowe as the 10. But if it was me, I think I would be hoping and maybe seeing if there's not a way of trying to get Odegaard on loan again. I know, yeah, seems to be a lot of talk about. It was done, it was ended, he's gone back there, but I remember the same happening with Ceballos and if there's a way of somehow getting him back, I think that would be a good move for me and if you could get him on loan, that'd be a fantastic move and then you can spend the money on the midfield. 
Um, and then Madison talk, obviously there, Uar. I mean, you'll be best placed to me to talk about Uar, but for the price, if it is 20 million, I mean, yeah, that seems great. Um, mm. But yeah, it's gonna. It's so difficult. I mean, uh, who would you have as the if you were signing the one centre mid to play with Parsi? Because I think that for me is going to be the next big one they've got to do. What would you do there? Who would you go for? I mean, I'm really torn because my my heart says I would go for for Hussein Awal because he comes across as to me like this deal should have been done last year, and the only reason oh. it didn't get done is because we tried to drive the price down. And Leon, as you probably know, you know Jean-Michel Olas is not. He's not a, a chap who takes cheap for his players. He will always try and maximise them. And I think the thought process was they keep OR, they get back into the Champions League and they refund the team rebuilding. Obviously, that's not happened and they've lost Memphis Depay. And OR, where they've gone wrong, I think, in trying to sell him to us is that because he he had a few issues off the pitch last year. There was the notable when he refused to warm down after a game. Uh, he, he was then subsequently suspended by the then coach, Rudy Garcia. And I think that had a bit of a slightly unsettling effect on on him within the squad and I think that also might have contributed towards us not going back in for him heavily this summer because Arteta is very as we know he, he's very regimented he doesn't like players who are going to cause any issues in the dressing room if you ask Gunduzi for example or Mesut Ozil so I, I almost think both Leon and Arsenal have kind of drifted that way on that deal but that said he's probably the cheapest of the players we've been looking at and arguably has the most upsides because he can play as a four, as a six, as an eight, as a ten even, or even wide left if you need him to. So I think he's got the most value and he's probably the one that, if you look at, needs a refresh of club more than any of them. That said, I have come around to the Ruben Neves idea a little bit in that, as you say, he he looks like a player who just needs a new club and a, and a fresh start. And he, he has got the talent. But like you, I just don't think he's got 40 million quid's worth of talent. That's my worry on that one. And then my other big issue with this question is, I, I like you, would go for Odegaard as the 10, because I just think he's a, a supremely gifted player. But I don't. I think we need a more defensive player, if anything, because people have this idea that Thomas Partey is a, a Gilberto Silva type, and he's not that type of player. Uh, yes, he can make tackles, but he's a creative defensive midfielder he's not a guy who's who's going to run around and you know Coquelin and 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 Gilberto and Petit and Vieira he's not like that that's not his game and um unless the manager's thinking about coaching him into a deeper player I just don't think that's his role and when he played at Atletico Madrid like he had what was the old guy's name before he retired was it Gabby not Gabby yeah it was Gabby yes Gabby yeah yeah, yeah. play alongside him and then he had like the coke yeah. sort of link with him as well like, he often had a player who would either, if not do the defensive work, would work alongside him on the defensive role. And at Arsenal, he just hasn't got that unless you play on any. So if I was spending the money, I, I would go with Awar and Erdegaard. They would be the two I would push hard for. And I would sort of say to to Awar, if you're coming in, yes, we want you to create. and We want you to be, if you like, the Aaron Ramsey of this team. But you're going to have to work your balls off going the other way because I don't want, I don't mind two creative, uh, deeper players, but they've both got to work back. Like you can't have two caught up field and and you can't rely on, you can't say to our right, you can build us from deep, but you leave party on his own. You can't have that. Um, and I think even Shaka got caught on his own a few times last year where players just everybody upfield, Shaka on his own, and that made him look a worse player than he probably really is, even though I'm not his biggest fan, as you know, but that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
two other two other questions I wanted to ask you before we um, before we wrap up. One is on the manager because uh, you. I think you're a fan, aren't you, of, of him? As it's funny how we talked about Gareth Southgate being as a man and as a a football uh, personality and a football brain. Fantastic, you know, speaks very well, comes across very well. To me, Mikel Arteta is very similar. He says a lot of things that I do sometimes rewind and go, "You've you've said a lot of words there, but you haven't really answered the question, have you, Mikel?" Which you know, certain <laughs> other managers in our past have been very famous for doing, but. Undeniably, he's a very talented coach, and and even as a slight doubter myself, I think that's very clear. And and he's clearly got a lot of upsides. Where do you kind of sit on what he needs to do this season to to silence the doubters? Because you know, an FA Cup would be lovely, of course it would. But do you feel like he has to do a lot more to silence the critics? Because it does feel like a growing number of people who it sounds quite sad, but almost want him to fail now. Mm. I mean, I, d- I don't feel like he's got very much credit in the bank left with with Arsenal supporters. It's difficult to read it off Twitter because it's you know it's not the normal barometer you get. When you go to the you know when you go to games every week and the atmosphere inside the stadium is often different to Twitter and you and I think when you lose the stadium that's when managers really do lose their job. So it'll be interesting to see as the season progresses how that goes. But for me I don't feel as though he's got any more um, I wouldn't call them excuses, but reasons for the difficulties they had. I mean, look at where these things cope with. You know, we talked about the pandemic, talked about the Urzel situation, obviously, Gwendouzi, everything around Abamyang, um, contracting malaria, the off field issues. Um, so there are a number of situations he's had that I feel like you give him the slack for and say, okay, we can understand that. But now this summer, he's going to have the full preseason. He's going to have a full window. He will hopefully get the squad he wants, um, get the players in he wants, get the players out he wants. We saw the benefits in January when he got rid of players that he didn't want as part of the rebuild. So when we go into this season, I don't feel like there's any reason why the team shouldn't be performing. I don't think from the fans' perspective, probably the media's perspective too, um, he's going to get much slack and understanding if Arsenal get to November time and they're where they were this November. So he's, he, for me, he's got to deliver this season. What that looks like, um, I think it needs to look like a season that uh, West Ham had probably, or maybe Leicester, where I don't think you say to him, you have to finish in the Champions League places, but you need to be in the race. Mm. I think Arsenal finished, was it three points off the top four, This maybe four points off the top four? But they weren't never, we were never really in the race for the top four. Yeah. I think you need to get to sort of the 34th, 35th game and be in the hunt, you know, be sixth and be sort of three points off the top four. And if you end up finishing fifth, sixth, so be it. But you need to put up a genuine race to finish in the top four for me. That is what his aim should be this season, particularly when you've only got one game a week. And that, I think, will help Arteta because he is, as you say, a coach. And that is his probably biggest asset, is that his ability to coach players and make them better. Um, as a manager, I still think he's got things to learn, um, particularly with his man management. And I think players sometimes can feel, I think he seems to, uh, from the outside, he seems to go hot and cold on players. Mm. Um, I remember Maitland-Niles, you know, was, was the flavor of the month for five, six weeks. And then he's gone from the team. Cedric, even last season, yeah. the flavor of the month. And then after that Slavia game, we don't see him again. And that can be difficult. And, 
that I think probably an element of his side that he needs to work on, on the management side. But as a coach, I don't think you can really argue against his credentials and particularly people at City talk about the work he did on the training ground with the players as being very good. And it's the same at Arsenal. A lot of those players have really bought into what he does. Kieran Tierney in particular, Saka, Smithrow, these players are fully behind what he wants. And there are probably some similarities to Pep, not just because he worked under him, but also because I think the younger players, I think it's the same with Pep as well, really. They they will buy into his philosophy. They mm. just, I think Pep in his career always seemed to struggle a bit more with senior, more experienced players buying into him. And I don't know if that's going to be the case with Arteta, but it certainly seems to be the trend that the younger players are fully on board with what he's doing and they are 100% going for it. Um, and now it's about delivering that on the pitch. We've seen moments until that semi-final with the Real. I actually thought he was very good in, in one-off games, particularly that FA Cup run mm. and the sort of knockout games he found a way. But that was the first time where um, I think tactically he got it wrong. Um, yeah. He sort of overthought it. Um he pepped it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could say that. Yeah, he, he just, I just feel like he tried to, he almost changed and it didn't help too fair in that second leg that Xhaka was injured in the, you know, the last minute before warm-up and he has to suddenly throw on Kieran Tierney. But I kind of felt like they moved too many pieces of the team to solve one situation. Like they took Saka out of central midfield to move him to left back rather than just at the end, you know, just biting the bullet and saying, right, we're going to keep everything the same and just put Saka at left back. Yeah. And I think towards the end of the season, we watched a couple of games, didn't we, where we saw that and everyone was just like, yeah, you know, that's why didn't we, we do done. this earlier? And, yeah. yeah. And and I will forgive Arteta for that because he's a rookie manager. And, and as a club, I think Arsenal do understand this. If you employ a rookie manager, they're going to be learning things and they're going to make mistakes. The, the key thing will be next time this comes around, does he, has he learned from it and does he react differently? But on the whole, I, for me, feel there's enough signs to be positive. I think he's really trying to change the culture at the training ground. He is an absolute stickler for the rules, um, as we saw with Aubameyang, um, you know, dropping him from from a North London derby. It's the same when he was a player. He was renowned as being the policeman of the dressing room. He was the one who, who laid down the door, which I think is incidentally why he quite liked Xhaka. Xhaka was that same sort of role. And also, Neves is very much in that mould, which is why... I do wonder if they will go for him. If you speak to people at Wolves, he's the one who is the fine master at Wolves. He's the one who is absolutely on the discipline. And that is very much an Arteta player. So he sort of fits the bill there. Um, mm. And slowly but surely, he is he is changing the culture at the club. It's going to take time. I think he's got the backing from the club. Um, I mean, he survived that run October, November, December time, didn't he? Yeah. And to come through a run like that and out the other side of it, I mean, fair play. Um, some fans will argue he could have been sacked at the end of the season. I think other clubs would have sacked him. But for Arsenal, you've gone down this route of going for the young manager, the big rebuild. I kind of feel like in the position now where you've got to see what's at the end of the road, as bumpy yeah. as it has been and as brutal as it had been, I think you might as well now just let's keep going. Let's give him this season. Let's see what happens. Um because I think if you if you'd quit now, don't really think you'd fully given the chance of a of a project manager, a rebuild manager. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be interesting. I, I for one would like him to succeed. I'm the, I'm the same as you. I really like him as a person. He's very good to deal with for the press. Um, everyone you speak to seems to say he's a you know a lovely bloke. So I would love him to succeed. Um, 
But this feels like the season that will define his his era at Arsenal, I think, whether it's a success or a failure, because I'm not sure if he has another, you know, eighth, ninth place finish, no. whether he's going to get another year. Especially not with fans um, in, the, <clears throat> in the ground. I, I think well, the audio precisely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Um, final question then, which is along similar lines. Uh, talk to me about Amazon. I mean, how how do you <laughs> how do you see this going? And and from a more, I guess, personal point of view, does it does it change depending on whether you're uh, sort of on site or not? I guess, but does it change your sort of outlook on how you're going to uh, sort of conduct your work in terms of journalism? I mean, are you going to be aware that there's going to be this constant presence of cameras in and around? And you know, do, do you sort of feel like? Is, is there a reason behind this, I guess, is the question, or is it purely about getting some money back? Because we've seen, I think, the difference with the, the Spurs one in particular, all jokes aside, we kind of laughed along because their season was such a shit show and there were so many very cleverly edited uh, bits where it's quite clear that there's a bit set up there. There's an element of drama. There has to be because it's a show. Whereas the Man City one, I mean, they were successful, so there wasn't really much to mock, was there? Whereas with us, it, I I just don't know what I mean. I don't I don't think it's a great idea. I've got to be honest. But do you feel like the club have done this for for more exposure, for more money, or do you actually think that in a weird way, it might just be something that we look back on and go, that was a really good idea because we have a really good success successful season and and things come out of it for the better. Maybe it changes the dressing room, for example. I'm so intrigued to see um, to see how this goes. Um, as, as a fan I think it's great because every fan wants to see behind the curtain don't they they want to mm. you know want to get any insight into the inner workings of the club and of course this is going to be a a peek behind the curtain but you know a slightly edited peek behind the curtain um, I mean financially it's a very good thing for the club there's no getting away from that um, Tottenham Daniel Levy very savvy operator knows what he's doing Arsenal, I'm sure, would have been very well paid to do a documentary like this. Um, but it is a risk because you are letting the cameras in. And for me, personally, I don't know the sums of money being involved, but I kind of feel like this is a huge moment in Arteta's rebuild. It is the season, it is the summer, and you're letting the cameras in. So it could be brilliant because you could document the season when Arteta banged and he turned Arsenal into, you know, a top four contender and they went on a brilliant FA Cup run and it's fantastic because you've documented it all and you then show it all to the world and they go oh god this is fantastic they've got this young you know exciting vibrant manager they've got these young likeable lads like Saka like Smith Rowe god I want to you know I want to support this team or you open the door and they go oh wow this is you know they stack the manager after four months and then you know they got so and so in and and that's the risk you take. So, I mean, it's it's a, it's a bit of a gamble, but maybe that's where Arsenal are as a club at the moment, that they need to do something like this. You know, mm. I mean, City did it again because I think City did it because they wanted the exposure of the City brand. And let's be honest, you know, City are financially a big club and trophies-wise a big club, but as a brand around the world, they're still not your huge club. And this mm. was an opportunity for, for them to showcase that. And they sort of knew they're going to finish first or second. I've seen all of the all or nothing NFL documentaries, which are very good, even as I'm not an NFL fan. Um, mm. They are very good though, but they are a much, um, 
greater look behind the curtain than the football ones. So the yeah. they did one with the LA Rams, which is Stan Kroenke's team. And in that, you saw the the coach's speech to the players saying goodbye, like, I've been sacked. Mm. You know, and you didn't get that with Spurs and Pochettino. It's just Pochettino's gone. Um, you know, he's left. The City one I found very polished. Yeah. Um, the Leeds one was even more polished. Leeds was different and wasn't all or nothing, a different one. I mean, that you didn't even get anything in the dressing room. I don't know if that was no. Bielsa saying, right, you're not coming to the dressing room at all. 100%. City did yeah. with Pep. City, <laughs> City did with Pep which I think is a benefit from Arteta. He will know what this is like having those cameras yeah. around. It could even be the same crew that did it. So that is an advantage. Um, they will have Arteta will know what it's like. And I can't imagine, I don't know, but I can't imagine he will massively be involved in the sort of, you know, the city one had a lot of cheeky Briggestein, um, the sort of executives were sort of creating the narrative and filling weaving bits in. And, and there will be, there will be a star. It's, it's the same as any drama, you know. It's, I know it's a documentary, but it is a drama, and you have stars of the show. So I'm in, so intrigued to see who is going to be the star of this show. The Tottenham one was obviously Jose Mourinho because it's yeah, Jose Mourinho <laughs> comes Rose. in. You make it. That's Danny Rose, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, that was some of the Tottenham stuff you saw. I mean, having you know, seeing Kane and Mourinho's meetings, Danny Rose. Yeah. That was some pretty intense stuff to get a witness of, and. Mm. You know, if you're the directors from this, I kind of feel like you feel like someone like Saka. Yeah, I was thinking that. A likable person. Um, Rob Holding, Tierney, these sort of characters, I feel, could be the way that it goes. It will depend a lot on the form, but there will be, um, that's what I'm very intrigued to see, who is going to be the sort of first day week round. And, you know, the Sunderland ones, um, for anyone who's not watched, are amazing. Um, Mm. But they are amazing from the car crash element to some of them you know um but even in that and then george honeymoon i remember the player in that he's so so likable in it and johnny williams as well as another one mm. who comes across brilliantly in it but you watch bits of that and they are fascinating and that's some of them one i love it when um i think they're trying to get will griggin and yeah. uh deadline day and the sort deadline of day, you yeah. know they're going back and forth trying to agree a fee all this sort of stuff um and i think they end up paying might be five million pounds or something, and some of them are a League One club. It's a lot of money, and you know the owners like I don't know if I do it or not. And it even gets to the mm. point where the manager's like, "Do not buy him; it is not worth the money." And yes. the owner does it anyway. And yes. you get you you just see this insight into a club. But mm. the Sunderland one gained supporters; they gained fans because they were invested in the story. Yeah, um, and that is the way it happens with these. You do you do enjoy these teams and I watched the, the NFL one and the Arizona Cardinals. I really enjoyed learning about them, carried mm. on watching the game and stuff. So it is a huge, huge risk to do it. I think for Arsenal, I think it's probably an indication of where they are as a club that they need to do this documentary. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be so fast. I think it'll be, I think it'll be fascinating either way, whether it's fascinating sat with your, you know, hands over your eyes or fascinating and your company <laughs> enjoying it remains to be seen but I mean can you imagine them doing sort of last season deadline day with party and Edu trying to get that all over the line it's going to be it's going to be great but um, I do I do, uh, I do wonder what's going to be left the most interesting stuff what's left on the cutting room floor and what doesn't get out and seen yeah um, yeah or what leaks out that shouldn't leak out maybe and, yeah, yeah the only the, the probably the best thing for Arsenal fans and what should give them the most comfort is Arteta has done this before at City, even if he wasn't the leading light. 
And the Cronkies yeah. have done this before with the LA Rams. So they're not going into this completely blind. blind um, yeah. They are aware what they are signing up for. And they will be hoping it turns into be a brilliant success, which it could well be if Arsenal have the dream season. Every Arsenal fan is going to be desperate to watch that documentary because oh, how do we do this? How do we turn around? And fans around the world will suddenly be like, oh. So mm. it's going to be great. Um, and as a journalist, yeah, for me, it will be, it will be strange. Um, particularly if we're there at the press conferences and they're sort of filming us milling around and... Um, eating sausage rolls <laughs> eating sausage rolls yeah I mean uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping they'll be more focused on the actual players rather than us journalists but um, even for me thinking about like that I wonder what it will be like for the for the players but when um, you speak to people who've been involved in other documentaries they always say that pretty quickly after sort of weeks I think the players sort of forget that yeah. cameras are there and and they forget it quite swiftly but oh it's going to be every I think I think um Everyone loves these documentaries, but they are quite. When it's your club, I think people are a bit, a bit That's scared it. of watching them. That's um, exactly it. The, That's my worry. The only one, the only I haven't seen. That's a couple I haven't seen. I haven't seen the Dortmund one. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, and I haven't good, yeah, seen yeah. the and I haven't seen the Juve one. Also um, good, subtitled, which is uh, a bit of a takes you out slightly, yeah. just naturally. But yeah. But the best, the best one, I think the Sunderland one is if is anyone's not seen, I think are the the are the best ones. Um, yeah, there was there was one done you, at Sunderland. I don't know if you know this, but there was one done at Sunderland in the nineties before yeah. the Sunderland side died with Pete Premier, Reed. Premier, Premier Passions. Passions. Yeah, I and I it on YouTube. That's it. That it's on YouTube. Absolutely amazing. That the, the Pete I Reed mean, losing his mind part is just. Like you just see a man losing his marbles, don't you? It's, it's like the the famous oh, stuff with Neil Warnock doing the same. It's just car crash yeah, to the, to the hill. That, I mean, those are those are proper. That that is a that is a documentary that would not be made now. Like the stuff no. they put out God is. No. I mean, they sign who do they, they do they sign Tony Coton and he's basically. Or oh, Tony Coton gets injured in pre-season. He's absolutely crap. Oh yeah, the goalkeeper. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then um, they sign this. Um, well, they're about to sign this like Israeli striker, aren't they? I think, mm. and he comes over and he's absolutely riddled with it. Like it's just a terrible, terrible sign that they make. Yeah, and he's like, he costs like a hundred k, and he's like, yeah, I think he'll be the man to sort of you know keep us in the Premier League. It's like he won't be. He costs a hundred thousand. Yeah. <laughs> he's not going to be the man. It's not going to work. No. And, and, and also the sort of it is yeah, yeah that is on YouTube. And if anyone hasn't watched that, go and watch those Premier Passions because they are fascinating document and they're so they the access they get is amazing i mean they're yeah. very, very much in there with peter reed but it's also um they they get into some of the fans i think when they're getting their season tickets yeah um and it's just proper throwback 90s stuff yeah um it's almost like the office think, but in football isn't yeah. It? Like, yeah oh yeah i mean it's, yeah. it's uh, there are some other 90s ones i've not i'm trying to the other ones i've seen there's a graham taylor one obviously the very famous one yeah impossible job um but that Premier Passion one is actually sort of less well known, um, mm. and I think yeah, I think it's because they've just they've just moved into the Stadium of Light. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean it's the sort of way to n- that that is an example of not not how to run a football club. They basically get promoted and they're like, right, we're going to build this massive fifty thousand seat stadium that we can't fill. Um, yeah, that we, that we can't fill, <laughs> and you know we're going to spend hundred k on a uh, on this Israeli striker who's cropped to keep us in the division. Um, but it's yeah, it's a great, and I'm sure from this there'll be some great sound bites. And um, I think 
hopefully there'll be there'll be players oh I'm sure there'll be players that come out of it who we learn about that we didn't know about and I think that was as bad as the Sunderland was for you know the car crash it was I do remember you know as I said likes of Johnny Williams George Honeymoon these young lads who came across you watched it like oh, these are just really nice kids really nice blokes and I would it would surprise me if the directors of this documentary I, I imagine they'll sort of you know five six weeks of film thing but they'll suddenly realise like right who is going to be the narrative that we weave this around yeah get the squad list was, yeah and it, it feels like something that you know you look at Saka particularly with everything that's gone on this summer yeah it's um, written itself, it would be it? It, it would be bloody nice if it was um, a redemption arc for him that we're we're all watching next summer yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I speak for all Arsenal fans when I say I'm really looking forward to seeing like Savlaka and Abamyang and William doing a conga around the dressing room as we draw one-one <laughs> away at uh, Brentford or something. It's going to be yeah, that's going to be a thing. Or somebody turning up late for for a game on I mean, Lopez, El yeah. Nene arriving in a three-wheeler, something like that. You know, you just know Abamyang feels made for a documentary. Yeah. To be fair, I mean he's he's a showman. He is an extrovert. Yeah. He kind of feels like she should be, you know, I know it's the same when we talk, I think, performing in front of crowds and, you know, stadiums. He is somebody who loves doing that. So I do wonder what his role will be in yeah. in something like this. But oh, I think it's going to be, uh, it's interesting. It's going to be exciting. And I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm nervous, but excited to, yeah. to witness yeah. it. And then there'll be all these things that, I mean, I remember when, when the Tottenham one was being filmed, there were all these stories that were coming out like, cameras are filmed you know Pochettino and Levy sacking mm. and it's like the cameras are filmed this it's like they might have filmed all this but probably not probably gonna not going to see it so no, no you're um, not going to see it no 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 it's going to be interesting um it, only other one I would I would highlight for people who who like those kind of documentaries um I'm not a massive I know you're a little bit more than I am but I'm not a massive cricket person I was back in the 90s probably more so but the one they did with the the Australian team uh, which I can't mm. remember what it's called. It's called like, the, test. Sport, the test. The test. That's the one. Yeah. Um, I was I was absolutely obsessed with that. that. Was like, brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah. Very few, very few series or anything. Like the last thing I really watched with any sort mm. of level of of love was Dexter, and I watched that like ten years after it was made. Mm. Most things I'm like, yeah, I'll watch one or two episodes, and I'll just get bored and and go and do something else, and I'll never get back to it. But that uh, I watched one episode, and I was like. I haven't really got the time, but I have to watch the next episode. And mm. it was really interesting for probably a sport, like you said with the NFL ones, I wasn't really that invested in it. Mm. It made me go, actually, I really like these guys. And like you said, the the Sunderland thing with Johnny Williams, when he had all those injuries and it, mm. it made me go, I really want this guy to do well because his, his career was on the floor with injuries and, and you just thought, I want you to do well. Um, yeah. whereas the Tottenham one, uh, none of them came out of that. In fact, I just found it funny watching Song get injured. That's terrible, isn't it? But I did find it funny. I'm not going to lie to you, viewers. It's an Arsenal podcast. Who cares, you know? That, uh, uh, that Aussie one, I mean, that Aussie one was, so, I mean, that was done as in the wake of um, Sandpaper Gate. So when the Aussies were done yeah. for essentially cheating, in a, and it was, I mean, put, to put it bluntly, basically a PR exercise or to, yeah. to try and win back and present the country and the team in a different light. And it worked. It, it, yeah, it I mean, to have, I mean, I'm English, obviously, and a vast sort of people I know are English watched it and thought, oh, I actually really like the Australian cricket team. I shouldn't like them at all. But the they, way it was, you know, you actually came across and particularly Langer, who was the, the sort of coach, even a little small bit when I remember they, they sort of 
missed that run out in one of the tests and he smashes the bin over and all this rubbish goes on the floor and then it cuts back and he's putting all the rubbish back in the bin because he made a mess in the room. Just little bits like that. You've got an insight into them. And that was an example for Arsenal of how it can work and how it can create a really positive image and brand around your club. Um, so that is a good example. And, and just being documentary, the last chance you documentaries, I don't know if anyone's ever watched those, but they're on Netflix um, and they are brilliant. They are absolutely fantastic. They are essentially junior college athletes, um, which is all trying to get to your big, you know, Chicago's, you know, Harvard, all these, they're trying to get to the big unis and they basically had to drop down to a junior college level because of they've mucked up in their life. They might have, you know, been involved in drugs or bad grades. And it is a raw fly on the wall documentary. And because it's junior college and I myself and most people in the UK do not follow junior college, you have no idea how this season is going to pan out but they focus on sort of three, four people and it's a character documentary where you follow them through and you are rooting for them. You are absolutely praying that these guys, you know, have a good season. They get their big move to university and those documentaries, anyone gets a chance, Netflix launched last chance you, um, they're fantastic. So it can be a positive thing and let's, let's think positively. Let's hope it is for Arsenal. It's, uh, it's not the car crash that we fear. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to put a live prize up uh, for available for our viewers now. The first person, this is, this is, I've just come up with this, the first person that spots Simon on the documentary, the first person to tweet us at the ABW account will win a prize. And it may or may not be a picture of Danny in the bath. So if that isn't an incentive, I don't know what is. So look out for him. Um, Simon, where can people find you if they want to follow you um, or read your articles? Where can people uh, locate you if they wish to do so? yeah i'm just uh on twitter at sr underscore collings um and then all my work will be on uh yeah standard.co.uk slash sport um you can read everything i do there but yeah give us a follow always happy to interact with people and um fingers crossed we have an enjoyable season to cover excellent good stuff and obviously if you if we do not sign the player that you're all hoping for this summer just tweet time and blame him because you know that's what we do with all journalists so uh, we've got to pick someone else so who who better than to do it than Simon um so it's been a pleasure mate um obviously we speak pretty much every day on, on whatsapp groups and stuff but it's been really cool to have you kind of in a live setting and and hopefully people will give people a bit of a, an insight and a look behind the curtain at, at the world of journalism because I know a lot of people think like to think they know a lot about it but they probably don't so uh really good to chat to you mate and, and really and really enjoyable to to get some of your stories so thank you very much for your time today no, thank you for having me on. very much enjoyed it. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, well, that is the end of episode three of ABW In Conversation With. Uh, I have been your host, Chris. Simon has been my guest, of course. Uh, tune in for more. We will be doing a couple more of these before the season starts. A couple of other guests lined up. Uh, some you might know, some you might not know, but you have to tune in to find out more. So thank you very much for listening, for viewing, for downloading, for doing all that good stuff. If you are watching on YouTube, uh, be sure to subscribe and follow us and uh, ding Danny's bell and all of those things. I don't know, algorithms, uh, something like that. I'm not the tech guy here. I just get the guests. That's what I do. And I just talk. So uh, yeah, please do give us a follow and a like, etc. and so on. And uh, until the next one, thank you very much to Simon for his time again. And thank you all for joining us. And we'll speak to you very soon. As soon as I scored that goal, I was fucking livid. Splendid business. Get down, dog.